I'm back. This is Sid Finkelstein, and this is the Sidcast. And it is the podcast where I get to chat with really cool, fascinating people that you probably don't know, but will wish you did. And uh, we're going to get the story. Everyone has this amazing story, and my guest today is uh, no, uh, no exception. But before um, kind of telling you a little bit about the, about the guest, I just... I was just thinking about you know the type of conversation uh, that uh, that I had with uh, with her, and we we talked about you know an appreciation of beauty, and that's how I'm kind of out there, an appreciation of beauty. It turns out that's the definition of aesthetics, and I actually like that a lot, you know, because food food just tastes better when it's uh, when it's served in a beautiful dish, and uh, it's almost like a mindfulness thing, you know, you're. You're looking, you, you, if you pay attention to the details around you, the stuff that's, that's around you, you know, it's not just, you know, walk down the street and, and, and smell the flowers. It's the little details of life. You start to see this incredible, this incredible beauty that, 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 that's there. And when you do that, you get these minor little, little tinkles, little appreciations that, uh, that add some value to it. And for some people, it's a really big deal. And as I've gotten older, I think for me, it's become more and more important. I'm sure when I was, uh, you know, 20, uh, or 24 for that matter, Ben, my producer, is 24, uh, I probably wouldn't have paid attention to anything, although he's better than I was at that age. Uh, but now and for a number of years, yeah, the label on a wine bottle, actually, it means something to me. And yeah, there's a marketing side to it, of course there is, but you know, there's a beauty to it, or at least the potential to be be a beautiful thing, and uh, and that's definitely uh, true for food. It's true for all sorts of things, and mindfulness also, you know, speaks to, um, uh, um, I guess, a statement about the power of our brains. We process information in different ways, and I was thinking, you know, this even relates to something. It's going to sound a little disconnected, maybe, but uh, the placebo effect. Now, who's listening that could draw the connections be- before I tell you what I'm thinking? Uh, the placebo effect. Everyone knows what the placebo effect is. You know, there's a drug trial and you take the drug and you take the, and the control group gets nothing, a sugar pill. And what do you find out? Most of the time there is a placebo effect, which means that the, 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 the patients, the people in the trial that actually took a pill that had nothing in it at all actually did better. Now, how, how is that possible? How is that how can that be? I'm fascinated by this, and I've been reading more and more about the placebo effect. And it, it speaks to, you know, that our brains, our minds are so, so powerful that we actually can get better uh, on our own uh, if we think that, if we think something's good for us, then it's good for us. And if we like the plate that the food is served on, the food tastes better. And if the cup I use for my morning espresso is a beautiful cup, uh, one that I may have collected in Finland or somewhere else, which is true. Uh, I enjoy that cup of coffee much, uh, much more. So it's, uh, I mean, it's silly, right? But it's, but it's true. And uh, it's actually a cheap way to have fun. It doesn't cost you anything. All you got to do is appreciate in the moment, whatever it is you're doing. And in my case, because I'm such a crazy foodie, uh, uh, food, but it doesn't only have to be doesn't only have to be about that, and 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 that's my my segue to um, to our guest today, who is uh, Deb uh, Deb Schindlinger, and Deb is the founder and the owner of a small coffee shop in Lebanon, New Hampshire. Now that's going to be off the beaten trail for probably ninety nine percent of the people listening, but you know maybe you'll start going. It's a fantastic coffee shop, third you know third wave coffee. It's kind of like our own um, 
Intelligentsia or Stumptown or, or Blue Bottle or George Howell or what have you. Uh, all of those names are, uh, are names in the, uh, in the holy uh, trinity of, uh, of high-end espresso. Uh, some of you will know. Some of you will say, wow, let me try that or this guy's nuts. Uh, and Deb, you know, Deb has created this world-class coffee shop and, and talking to her is not, you know, the reason I wanted to talk to her and have her on the podcast, the Sidcast, not only because I think she's, because she makes amazing coffee, but her life is just interesting. I mean, to me, she's an example, the classic example of crafting a life. It's not a life that just kind of gets handed to you. We each create what it is we do in our lives. And, um, and sometimes, you know, you get somebody like Deb who's been, you know, she's an entrepreneur, she's an artist, she was an emergency room worker, uh, she's into tattoos, she could tell you about different tattoos on her arms and what they mean. One of, one of them actually refers to mindfulness or helps her think about mindfulness to consider that. So she's really, really um, interesting. And I love, I just love the idea of uh, the concept of creating a life. Um, I think actually more people do this than we, 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 we imagine. And the, 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 maybe the secret is we all could do it if we want to. We all could craft it, no matter what your job is. Even if you have kind of like a mainstream job and you're working, you know, eight to seven every day, uh, you can still craft a life uh, where you do different things, whether it's hobbies, whether it's volunteer work, whether it's something related to, you know, your spiritual needs or, or what have you. But for most of us, even for me, being a professor for years and years at, at Dartmouth, um, uh, I've, I've been very fortunate in that that's kind of the day job, but I've been able to craft a life in doing other things. And I guess creating a podcast is a pretty good example as well. So Deb, uh, Deb Schillinger is really fascinating. And um, I know you're going to love our conversation. Um, and, and by the way, uh, this is our first uh, Sidcast road trip uh, because we recorded right at Lucky's. I mean, the reason is because she offered me a free espresso and, you know, I just... I just, you know, she got me it free. And so I had to do that. And uh, so uh, it's going to sound kind of cool with the coffee shop sounds uh, behind us. And she even brought us a, a surprise uh, guest uh, that joined her for a few minutes, the master barista, Mark Nunziata, who's one of the top baristas in, in America. And uh, for all you coffee geeks out there, there'll be a couple of minutes in there that I think you're going to love. So uh, Deb, uh, Deb Schillinger. Can you believe that today I'm at Lucky's Coffee Shop with Deb Schindlinger, the founder and creator of pretty much the best coffee in the Upper Valley of New Hampshire? Hi, Deb. How are you? <laughs> Good, thank you. That was a good plug for that you. That was very nice. <laughs> but it's all true. I never, uh, I never lie about when it comes to coffee. I'm kind of a coffee snob and... Uh, uh, well, that's the end of the sentence, uh, which is funny talking to someone who's making her living from, from coffee. Well, so I appreciate it. When, when did you have your first cup of coffee? Can you oh, possibly remember such a thing? My very first cup of coffee. You know, interestingly, I didn't start drinking coffee until I was in college. Oh, so really, no. So I was what kind happened? of a late bloomer. Yeah. <laughs> because was the coffee wasn't, wasn't so good in those yeah, days. Yeah, I just didn't. I did, it wasn't something I ever had. I think I probably had uh, soda. <laughs> With right. caffeine in it prior to that. So you're in college, just the usual college yeah, thing, staying usual, up and yeah, people hang up, out. And needing to study, you know, need, stay need, up late. And, right, right. Yeah, and are you surprised to see what's happened to coffee over the years yes, from those early days? Definitely, yeah. Yes. It's changed a lot. I mean, I have, I owned a restaurant actually out in Oregon that was a coffee shop 20 years ago. And mm-hmm. so the, uh, yep. the amount of change in the coffee industry is just massive. Even in the last 20 years. So tell, tell us a little bit about that coffee shop. It was in Oregon, what town? Eugene. In Eugene, Oregon? Mm-hmm. Right downtown Eugene. And so you opened, was it your own coffee shop? It was, yeah. I was 27. Wow. Opened a, opened a little cafe, small. 
small little place, much smaller than Lucky's, probably half the size, maybe a third of the size. So how big is that for people that are not sitting with us here? So Lucky's here seats about 50 people, uh, and the the little place I had out in Eugene was named Debub's, an eclectic eatery. It sat about 15, (laughs) so much smaller, little tiny place. We did exclusively pour-over coffee back in those days, which uh, back in the coffee industry back then, nothing was uh, weighed or measured or timed. It was just really really kind of a wing ding. Right. <laughs> right. And uh, even espresso back then was that way. So this is 20, 20 years ago. 20 years so ago. Was, uh, so was Starbucks really big 20 years ago? I guess so. I really, I wasn't aware of Starbucks even no. then. I'm not sure when Starbucks was founded, to be honest with you. It might have been yeah. very much around that time. Uh, but there was espresso on every corner on the West Coast. We were in Oregon. And so, you know, the, the coffee scene right. in California, Oregon. What, what is it about Oregon that has so many co- <laughs> Seattle and Portland and Eugene? And, yeah. and it's also true, maybe you know this, in Scandinavia as well. Mm. In Sweden, they're like crazed for coffee. coffee. What? Why, why is that? It might be a social thing. I don't know. Maybe it's yeah. weather. Actually, that doesn't really work with Scandinavia, does it? It's well, it's freezing over there. Yeah, freezing over and there. I guess the, because it always rains in Oregon, right? Isn't that what you tell people when you don't want them to, to buy a house and push up the price of housing? You tell them, hey, it's always raining. It's always, we don't want to go in. Right. But um, so that was a little a little coffee shop. It was a restaurant and a coffee shop. It was a little, yeah, a little cafe and coffee shop. We served lunch and uh, essentially breakfast. Breakfast and lunch. We closed early in the afternoon and served coffee uh, throughout yeah. the day. Do you remember when it opened, like that first day? Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, it was a lot of work leading up to it. There was a lot of construction, a lot of planning and logistics leading up to the coffee shop opening. Right. Can and you, being 27, you know, it was all sort of yeah. like, you know, just making this up as we go along. That, that's pretty impressive. So can, can, you, can you describe, kind of visualize for, for me... You know, what, what did it look like? What did it smell like? What did it feel like when you opened that first place? day? Yeah, the first, the first day. day. So the sun was shining. It was We had a little south-facing store, very much like Lucky's here. So the sun, we had, uh, it was a historic building right downtown Eugene. And uh, the sun was shining. We had little awnings right out the front of the window, and we were sort of watching watching the sun happen. Nice. We opened at 7 o'clock in the morning. We were watching the sunrise come up and watching it march across the street and we very softly tried to open, you know, sort of not yeah. too much announcement, no advertising, mm-hmm. just sort of see if we could capture the eye of whoever was going to walk by. Right. And it was also before internet, you know. It I was mean, also before, before, before internet, internet, you know. Oh, I mean, the what, internet what's that? How, what kind of world could that have been? <laughs> yeah, you how, smoke signals yeah, to tell people? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Faxes, telephones, you yeah, know. Yeah, that's pretty so amazing. So email, email was just coming on board back then. So there was really the only way to get the word out was newspaper advertising or word yeah. of mouth. And, and uh, I had been managing a restaurant down the street for several years so I knew a lot of the clientele in the area and had just let them know subtly that we were going to begin opening at some point just keep their eyes peeled yep, you yep. know no date and that so, morning people started to come in yep they started to come in and then we you know pretty soon after we had some regulars mm-hmm. we were right down by the farmer's market so it's a busy place and uh, it was um, it was really fun you know we had little bells on the door and you know the sounds of the bells you know jangling and you're anytime you hear the bell it yeah, goes back like, there yeah. it is pretty uh, interesting yeah it's true about um about sounds mm-hmm. um music is like that of course right of course, you just yeah, remember it transports you. you know it transports you it sticks in your brain i was just talking to someone the other day about memory you know and you know as you get older you forget stuff uh probably a lot of it is locked back in but when you hear a song and sometimes it's a smell i don't know oh, if yeah, you ever the had smell that and the sound yeah the sound of like of the coffee brewing coffee brewing or uh, you right. know the the water running it can take you right back to a certain place you know what uh, a, a great a great memory i i have uh about smell when i was a kid i 
come home, uh, I'd walk home um, for lunch because mm-hmm. I was in an elementary school just a block and a half away. It was a different era. Nobody worried about nothing. <laughs> and, um, uh, and I'd be able to smell what my mom, a stay-at-home mom, mm-hmm. what she was making. Oh, before, from down the block. Well, as soon as I got near the front, front door, uh, I knew it. Isn't that something? And you know, that's just, this is a few years later. And I'm never going to forget that. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful. It's a powerful yeah, thing. Yeah, it smells like coming home. Where did you grow up? In Canada, Montreal. Oh, in Montreal. Okay. Yeah, and uh, it was a kind of middle or lower middle class neighborhood, row houses, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, maybe the neighbors smelled the food too. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it smelled like home. So, um, tell me what it's like to open a business at the age of 27. I mean, that's. <laughs> kind of young. Yeah, well, it was sort of a series of events. It was not something that I had ever, uh, it wasn't in my life plan, let's just say that. So uh, mm-hmm. my life has taken a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of curveballs and uh, a lot of, a lot of turns, but I found myself in Eugene uh, managing a restaurant right downtown. And so how, how it came about was the previous owner of the restaurant uh, decided to sell. And so I was looking at either being out of a job or doing something similar or finding another job. And I said, well, there's an opening down the block for a much smaller place. Mm-hmm. Why don't I open my own place? You know, so it's a. I, I changed it. I, I didn't open a copycat exactly, but I opened a little lunch place that served sandwiches and salads, and right. I used fresh stuff from the from the uh, farmers market. And then I started to tell all the clientele that uh, knew that, that the place I was managing was closing. That keep their eyes peeled. There might be a smaller place down the block, and then just sort of but, happened but after you, that. It, it, so you, you make it sound so kind of obvious, yeah. step by step by step, but it's not obvious. There's a lot of people that the job is, is ending, the place is closing down. I got to find something else to do. I got to move. But you somehow had this kind of entrepreneurial entrepreneurial bug or gene in you. Yeah. Did, I, I, you come I say, from a family I, like that that was entrepreneurial? I think or? very self-starting family. Self-starting. I would say not necessarily entrepreneurial in that my parents weren't entrepreneurs, but I would say that that's, that's probably there is a piece of that in me, you know, a yeah. serial entrepreneur. Uh, for my whole life, I think I've always been inter- deeply interested in things and mm-hmm. willing to just take everything to the next. It, it, it's a really step. interesting question. It takes us a little bit off track, but it does, are yeah. entrepreneurs born or made? Yeah, <laughs> and I think anyone could be an entrepreneur. People yeah. ask me that about leadership all the time, uh, and many people think you're either born leader or you're not. And it's not mm. not true. Yeah. You could learn anything, and maybe of course maybe it's the same for entrepreneurship, but. Create your own business. I think it's more of a. There isn't this innate thing that's. There's a little bit of risk. I mean, there's a certain amount of. You, you can't yes. be risk averse. So you look at risk. When you, so yeah. the, the research in entrepreneurship says that entrepreneurs, uh, they view risk differently than the average person that's not an entrepreneur. They mm-hmm. might see the same objective amount of risk, mm-hmm. but the entrepreneur doesn't perceive it as risky. Right. In the exactly. same way that the kind they, of, see, they uh, see average it as person, exciting. Or I can only speak for myself. It's exciting. It's so exciting. risk is exciting. You know, yeah. and because it could potentially bring uh, bring new 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 results that yeah. you couldn't predict before. So I guess that's the piece. I love change. You know, so I've said uh-huh. that my whole life. I love change. Most people can't say that. I don't think. That, you know? That's right. Most people. That's are, right. A lot of people are afraid so you, of change. You, you moved around, did a lot of things. Well, how long was this coffee shop open? How long? Uh, so it? let's see. I opened in uh, 1997 and closed in 2001. 2001. So, yeah. So it was almost four years. And it was one of the uh, September 11th uh, you know, tragedies, essentially. So really? September 11th happened, and uh, all of my clientele were uh, downtown professionals, uh, bankers, paying attention to the stock market. And so in, in those few weeks following September 11th, people started coming in a little bit less. 
my regulars that were coming in five days a week were now coming in four, and that's enough if you only have six tables to sort of oh, really. Yeah. The margin for error is yeah, very, yeah. very small. But they, they, so they thought they, they came in less. Why, why would they come? I mean, I can imagine after a, such a horrible thing that happened people want community you want to be with people yeah. you know you love it's counterintuitive yeah. isn't it so yeah. i think it had more to do with the stock market and talking to my people mm-hmm. people were just paying attention to their to their wallet more they were you afraid know, they were afraid, just or not overspending not you know really? cutting out sort of frivolous amounts and they were unsure what how everything was going to play out so there was a bit of fear right and so it was just enough over the next couple of months mm-hmm. to sort of really make me realize that it was uh, a little too close to call so i, I sold it I so was able to, I was able to sell it. You sold it to yeah. you know, someone else. And then what did you do after that? Uh, let's see. After that, I actually uh, I was recently married when, uh, when, when uh, D-Bells was happening. Actually uh, became pregnant soon after that. We started our family. I was working at a hospital right after that. Of course, you know, none of the, the jobs I have have any sort of visible segue. <laughs> There's no you know, segue other, here. Other than the managing of the restaurant to the next restaurant. But after, uh, after D-Bubs, I went to, the, to hospital work. I actually worked in an ER <laughs> to try something. How'd you get completely. hired for that? <laughs> Administration in an ER. So because I yeah. had uh, some computer skills working at the, at the restaurant uh-huh. as the owner, I had to sort of do a lot of this logistics and spreadsheets and, you know, a lot of, a lot of that. Uh, I was able to get a job in administration because I have a, a strong background in organization mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, logistics. And were were you things, actually so. in the ER? I was where actually you're... in the ER, yeah, what? administration. So this particular hospital had set up that uh, every, every patient who came into the hospital was funneled through one central desk. Mm-hmm. And then you went to whatever department you were going to. So, you know, here at DHMC, you, you present yourself to each department where you're going. There you walk in the door to one desk. And then you, you check in there. And you, you were one of the people at that desk. At that desk, okay. which happened to be at the ER. But my focus was ER. Yeah. Huh. And, uh, okay, and so uh, you start your family. So uh, tell kids, us about... My kids were born in Oregon. Bo- uh, you have two kids? Two kids, yeah. Boys or girls? Two daughters. Two daughters. They're now 14 and 15. Okay. Yeah, Ella and Opal. What do they say about mom, the coffee <laughs> entrepreneur? Well, they're at that age now where I, I couldn't ah, yes. be less cool. Yeah. So... I, I am so not this the, is like a totally coolest. crazy thing because I'm looking. You got this cool looking hat. <laughs> uh, you got interesting <laughs> tattoos. You're opened up the best coffee shop anywhere around this area. Uh, you're smiling and you have a beautiful. I mean, the sun is streaming in, but you're not cool enough for the teenagers. Yeah, no, the teenagers. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, they they will, you know, they will grow out of it. I speak from experience. Yes. <laughs> I can only hope. Yeah. And maybe one day they'll want to take this over. They worked here on the weekends occasionally, and okay. they do have fun doing that. Sure. But, uh, but it's a lot of work. I think it was a, a bit eye-opening for them. You know, they're just sort of coming on board with maybe their first job. So right. they weren't too fond of the idea of doing dishes, but that's where it starts. <laughs> when did you move uh, from the West Coast to the East Coast? It was right after. So we moved here in 2004. So my children were born in 2003. In 2004, we moved here when my youngest daughter Opal was six months old. So what was that? So what was that trip like? I understand you did some kind of unusual thing, shall we say? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I'm married to an unusual guy who's full of uh, nice. who's full of networking and uh, and uh, creative juice as well. So uh, when we moved from Oregon to here, we actually sold our house and then put all of our stuff into a school bus. We bought a school bus rather than renting 
uh, renting a U-Haul or renting a, a store, you know, a moving trailer. What did you do with the we bus? We bought a school bus, and so we took all the seats out <laughs> to make room for all the things that we were moving from the West Coast and somehow convinced all of our neighbors that they wanted a school bus seat for their front porch up and down the entire block. That's very funny. <laughs> and amazingly, they took them. They took so, them. Yeah, and many years later, I hear there's still school bus seats on the porches of this particular state. So you took the, the bus was your, was your moving truck? It's our moving van. Did you sleep in the bus? So I didn't actually travel on the bus with the two young children. I flew with my mom. Okay. And uh, my husband and his brother drove the bus across the country with the minivan in tow and lots of silly adventures ensued. What did you do with the bus uh, when, when you arrived here, or they arrived here, a bus with no seats? No. Well, my husband, who is a great collector of scrap metal and old Volkswagen buses and vehicles to scrap, he's grown up rebuilding vehicles. So we decided, uh, unbeknownst to me, he decided to actually sell the bus, which is completely out of character for him. I would have expected that he would have kept it and we would have made it into a guest house or something unique, but he sold it. So it, it paid for itself, you know, really. Right. The moving. Did you paint the bus the way you see these old Volkswagen? Yeah, no. It was just a bus. Yeah, yeah you're too young <laughs> to be part of that uh, hippie generation oh, of the no, 60s. Oh, no, that was big in the Eugene. <laughs> I was living in Eugene, remember, so that's the home of the, the Oregon Country Fair and uh, the Further Bus. What is that? The Further Bus. No, I don't know. Uh, I'm forgetting who the, uh, the writer, anyway, fam- famous bus of that, of that nature, painted hippie bus you know Eugene is sort of the hippie capital of, of Oregon so Eugene's the hippie capital yeah and you came from Eugene yeah and, okay now it's all starting, <laughs> it's all, starting all the little pieces are fitting together really well yeah. for uh, yeah. for me and so when you got uh, here to um, New Hampshire Vermont the upper valley as we call it what, what did you do you were you were you had two little kids I had two little two little daughters yep uh, so th- they were young, and I wanted to sort of... I was a stay-at-home mom at that point. I, my focus was to be with my kids until they started kindergarten. So I did whatever necessary, really, with, for the first five years uh, to sort of be with them at home and be with them at preschool or wherever mm-hmm. they were going to be. So I became a preschool teacher <laughs> at their preschool. <laughs> Just like that? Just like that, From yep. the emergency to room to, to preschool. To teacher, preschool. Yeah. So, uh, this is a kind of an entrepreneurial mindset. You just kind of... Like, you, you just decide you're going to do it, or you see the yeah. opportunity and say, I'll... Take it. Okay, I'll take it. Yeah. yeah or, or, and, and you should hire me for this because, you know, I just decide I want to do it and somehow right. uh, learn how to do You should hire it. me because. So you kind of make the case yourself. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. yeah. So essentially I wanted to be with my kids and I, and I knew a lot of the other moms who were sending their, their children there and opening uh, came open and, and there I was. Did you ever do this thing when you were making a decision, say about a career or a strategy of some type, the, the pros, the cons, and do a whole table here with... Being really analytical and yes. you know all the criteria, you, yeah, you did I, all I that do, kind of textbook I do do stuff. That, yeah, sometimes in writing, sometimes not. But I weigh all the opportunities and the risks, you know. Mm-hmm. And then most of the time, I, I jump anyway. <laughs> so when you do that, it kind of confirms what your gut instinct yeah. tells you, anyways. That's the thing. Yeah, but follow it makes, my gut. But it makes you feel better. Yeah, I it find, does. Well, actually, I found that to be a really good technique. Um, there are a lot of people that are very analytical, and they they they, they analyze with the pros and the cons, and they do um, they do the criteria and they weight them, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and at the end of the day, they do what they really uh, wanted to do. In the first I mean, place. I'm actually one of those uh, people. <laughs> I have used it to my advantage. Yeah, you're uh, making a case for yourself uh, to do it. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the the uh, the, the story. It's um, uh, actually when I graduated from college. Um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. 
so I started applying to all sorts of things, jobs, uh, but also a lot of um, school because mm-hmm. I like school. Uh, professor now, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> Good thing. Yeah. Uh, and I applied to law school, business school, PhD programs. And in the end, I had a few options. I had a couple, you know, a few acceptances, and I decided I'd create a spreadsheet mm-hmm. to compare them. Mm. And I, I kind of still have the visual of that spreadsheet where, you know, if you, if you imagine around the, along the top of the page, um, I had the five best options, mm-hmm. you know, this school, this job, whatever. And down the side, I had the criteria that I was going to use to weight them in the way you should make decisions with, you know, how much I would learn, what I would pay, who I would meet, whatever they were. And then I created this grid, you know, lines down, lines across, little boxes, and put a number in each box, mm-hmm. one to five. Okay. And I added up my options. And the option that had the highest number the highest score, when I saw that, I realized I didn't want to do that at all. <laughs> so I Change added the more. criteria a little oh, bit. Oh, you've Hold done on. this. <laughs> I, I actually added some more criteria. I ended up getting the answer I wanted all along. Okay. But I went through that process, and it kind of helped me, helped yeah. me get there. Confirm, concrete that you wanted to go. Yeah, to which is very funny. Yeah. So what, uh, one more thing about, about kids. So this is interesting. So uh, I'm a little, bit, a little bit older than you are. Um, but was brought up probably, probably differently, not in an entrepreneurial family, uh, even though I'm pretty entrepreneurial now, but I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I hope you don't mind my asking, but you have tattoos. Mm-hmm. And um, there they are. I yep. wish everybody could, could <laughs> see. We'll, have a, we'll post a photo yeah. next to... Oh, yeah. uh, uh, next, next to this uh, I have podcast about, about uh, 10, episode, but, uh, three are visible. Why? Why do you have tattoos? Well, it's the art. So one of the other things in my life that's been a bane of uh, through my whole life is the art. Mm-hmm. So I went to art school. Actually, I actually went to school to be uh, an art teacher. Never finished with of my course degree. You did. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was actually interested in geology and art, which are opposite ends of the mm-hmm. spectrum: science and art. Yes. But um, but art for me has always been there. And so the idea of having permanent art on your skin is uh, sort of of course, I would be into that. Although you're not the artist, somebody else is doing it. I, well, I have done some of my own art, uh, and then my best friend has actually done some of the art for my tattoos as well. My very first tattoos, I'll show you, are actually my kids' handprints oh when they were 10 God. days old. So there's, I think this one is Ella, yeah, Ella, and then oh Opal over here. Oh my God, look at that, <laughs> with their birth date, right? Birth date, yeah, their full name birthday uh, and then um, my best friend uh, created this band down below that has to do with all of their uh, astrological symbols and signs so this is going to sound crazy but I know a lot of people that would say to their kids whatever you do do not get a tattoo do, right <laughs> don't start with one visible and here's that? mom yeah. uh, that has beautiful tattoos <laughs> on both uh, arms for, for your own kids yeah they were a little mortified well they're, they're at that age where really every, anything I do is mortifying but I've often said that well someday I'll, I'll get your updated handprint when you're an adult, you know, sort of just you wait, I'll, I'll update it, put a bigger hand over it. I bet one of them, or maybe both, will write an essay for their college admissions Perhaps. about their crazy mom that has my, my handprint from Well, amazingly, back neither back. of them want tattoos or piercings or anything. That's because so, you, cause, yes, that's cause you have, have it. Them, right? they, they just got to be different. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's kind of like I grew up, everyone had long, long hair, and right. that was like a being a big rebel by having long hair. And now so many people have very short hair because their parents, well, I don't have any hair anymore, but because their parents have longer hair. So it's pretty funny, huh? It is. It is. It's amazing how it goes. I can hear that the music actually stopped in here, so I'm just going to restart it. I can have the power from my phone. Unbelievable. Well, this is probably a good time to take a short uh, break. Um, We're talking with with, uh, Deb from Lucky's, and we'll be right back. Mm, Thank you. 
We're back with Deb Schindlinger at Lucky's Coffee Shop, and amazingly, the coffee has just come over. I was waiting and waiting. I mean, I was just kind of talk to you as much as I can until the coffee just, just comes. Just waiting for the coffee to yeah, That's arrive. right. I have a time. beautiful cortado that has a little bit of latte art on that. Do you know how to do that, by the way? I the, do know how to do that. It's actually required if you're going to be working on bar at Lucky's. You have to you be have able to. to at least throw a heart. So do you train you train people on how to yeah, do that? Yeah, Mark, Mark, our coffee Mark lead. Mm-hmm. You should train, like, you know, podcast people also on that. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, it's yeah, great. Mm. He, he's really good. He uh, he actually placed in the Northwest Barista cha- uh, Championship in in, uh, in in Oregon. And so uh, he, he's very good at He's very good at teaching it. So, so um, how did you find this spot? Can you describe it for people? Like, where are we anyways? Sure. So it's called Lucky's Coffee Garage because we are in a three bay garage. It's a historic building built in 1952, uh, formerly known, known as Ray's, uh, Ray's Ray's Garage, and then it was known as Roy's up until it sold. That was a uh, pretty radical change Ray's right there. Ray's to Roy's, yeah. <laughs> Actually, Roy worked at Ray's before he bought it. And okay, so, uh, okay. <laughs> so it was, it was Roy's for, um, I think, 15 years. Um, and uh, then we, uh, in conjunction with Mike Davidson, Mike Davidson owns the building. He's a local redeveloper. Um, he wanted to buy this building. I think Greg and Kathy, who were the previous owners of Roy's, uh, were looking to retire. Uh, and Mike was looking for buildings in the central business district of Lebanon, and he was looking to buy, purchase it. And so uh, when the time came for me to think about opening a coffee shop, I was looking at Lebanon with fresh eyes and wondering mm-hmm. where I could possibly do this and swung around the green and had a look at the, at the, uh, the garage here. Still a working garage, had absolutely no idea that Mike was wanting to buy it and thought, wow, that would be a really cool coffee shop in yeah. a garage. Yes. You know? I was like, yes. it was really pie in the sky. I had no idea that that's even possible. After speaking to a few other local people, somebody uh, put me in touch with Mike and said, you know, you should get a hold of this guy, Mike. He wants to put a cafe in that garage. He had that. He had the same idea? Yeah, he wanted to put... He independently wanted to put a, of you. Yeah, independently of me and me independently of him. Okay. We were connected and it was sort of like, I want to put a coffee shop in there and he wanted to put a cafe in here. So it was just, you know, a match made in heaven, really. So and much about... Uh, how lucky's happened is like that. It's yeah. universal timing of everything. Right. So right. it just it just worked, which is why it's called Lucky's. Is, is that where the name came from? It really came? is. Yeah. It just worked. Yeah. It just worked. Everything showed up at the right time. Yeah. So um, you would have opened up a coffee shop somewhere if it wasn't this, but this turned out to be a great a yes. great spot. Yeah. Well, I was sort of on fire to open a coffee shop. I had when we moved here in 2004, it was one of the things that we noticed that was was sort of missing in the area. There's obviously places to get coffee. I'm not, uh, I'm not belittling any other coffee shop in the area because there's lots of places you can get yes. really decent coffee here. Uh, but there isn't anything with the sort of West Coast coffee shop vibe with music playing and sort of an atmosphere and a community a community aspect, social aspect to it. Right, right, right. Um, and so it was one thing we noticed that was lacking. And so I was not in a position to open another business when we first moved here with two young children. So we sort of decided, like, once the kids are older, maybe high school age, if there still wasn't a coffee shop... <laughs> Maybe I'd consider that, yeah. and so here we are. You know, kids are you now open, thirteen and fourteen. Is and it a year or two years? How many years? So now? we just passed our one year anniversary. One year anniversary. December second. December wow, and there's people here all, all the time. Yeah, we were busy pretty much from day That's one. Great. It was just absolutely so shocking. I'm looking at a wood floor here. Was there a wood floor? No, the whole place. This had was to be cement. Windy. This was. Oh a, yeah, it was so a garage. You, you had to gut the whole thing up. The whole thing. Although, well, you've kept certain sides. Yeah. There's a big it's golf a, it's sign. It's a cinder block building. Cinder block. Yeah. 
And so the floor, actually, there used to be three lifts right here. So the cars would be going up and down really? on the lifts, like in these bays. Huh. And they would be pulling in and out of the doors. Right, right, right. We replaced the doors. They were ancient and leaky, and it was freezing cold in here. It's essentially an uninsulated brick building. So there's, you know, there's challenges to go from garage to food, but also just physical challenges with the building and the right. construction. So. So I was very grateful to Mike, who was doing the renovating and the building inside. He was essentially building to suit, and so then we designed the inside and uh, and the. I, I really wanted to keep the the feel of the garage here, so I kept the the Gulf. I did throw back to the colors of the Gulf sign, the orange and blue. Right. And so I had my espresso machine powder coated orange to match the Gulf oh, sign. Oh, I just uh, just noticed yeah. that. Okay. And so the chairs are Gulf orange and the stools are Gulf blue. Ah, so it's got a it's got a nice kind of theme all the way through that yeah. customers like me pay no attention to. <laughs> and your hat is an orange well, hat. Yeah, it hat's orange, it's right? A... So it was one of those things we wanted to tie it all together in an sure. artistic way without really being so no, no, garagey. You know? I get it. So the, the the espresso machine is a La Marzocco. That's right. That's the Cadillac. That's what we used to say. Now I guess it's the Tesla of uh, of, of espresso. Nice. One of the absolute best, right? It's a workhorse. For and you sure. and you knew you had to get that machine, or yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I was going into specialty coffee, so there are certain uh, certain parameters that really are uh, best practices in specialty coffee, and uh, we decided that we were going to be busy. So we are busy. <laughs> so you got so you got ready for yeah, it. Yeah, we got ready. And you said two group what does that mean two groups so essentially it's two sides so there's two steam ones uh two portafilter uh inputs so that we can do two you two can do shots two at shots at the same yeah, time two, two baristas can be working the same machine i see okay so. now, how much does a machine like that cost <laughs> a lot <laughs> it costs a lot. It costs a lot. Several thousand dollars. Several yeah. uh, or many thousands yeah, many of dollars. Thousand dollars. That's right. Wow. So, um, uh, and your baristas are they all trained as baristas? Yes, essentially here by Mark. Mark has done a wonderful job with our coffee program. So you had so. people come in that wanted to work here, mm -hmm. maybe maybe pull shots, but yeah. they were not trained. They as were baristas. not trained, right? Yeah. So so Mark has has brought everyone up to speed. We spent quite a bit of time before we opened. I would say almost a month of training before we really opened to get all of the details in place and to make sure that the machine was functioning properly, that our roast levels were proper, and that the, all the parameters of our espresso pools were, uh, right. were good. Right. You know? So we spent a lot of time training, training on the espresso bar. What were some of the biggest challenges in getting started here? <laughs> Uh, well, gosh, that's a long list. It's a long yeah, list. Yeah, it was a long what's list. Near we were, the, we were near under construction for... Uh, well, a good eight months. We were expecting to be under construction for about two, but it ended up turning well, it into... sounds like my eight. last home renovation. <laughs> right. So I think with any project, you know, so you, you, you double your budget and it takes twice as long to complete. And then, you know, then you're covered. So you never, you never try to underestimate how much you're going to spend and how long it's going to take. You just double it. And right. then, and then you're, you'll feel pretty good about it. <laughs> I was hoping to open in August. I opened in December. In December. So oh, was, so, um, yeah. Okay, a year, a year and change. Um, now, how you have regulars here? You see all the time, like oh, any yeah. other place, right? All the time. Yep. Every day, half the time, we have their drinks ready for them when they arrive you do. in the door. Yeah. Oh, I love like, that. But, but sometimes they'll mix it up, you know, and really confuse us, which is fun. You know, when, yeah. When they decide to change away from their regular drink. So, so. I started my coffee drinking career um, uh, 18 years ago, mm -hmm. which is, sounds a bit odd, but I. Um, uh, of course, you drink coffee growing up here and there and a little bit, but I never was into coffee very much. In fact, the joke in my family is my wife and, and her family, they love coffee. And so we'd go, growing up in Montreal, you're in a car, you go somewhere, 
you're going out to shop or, or whatever. As soon as you parked the car, the first spot they would always go to, well, let's, let's have a coffee. And we, we just left the house 20 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Let's have a coffee. When we have to do one, two, three, four things, five things right away. Yeah. And I'm looking and saying, what is wrong with these people? <laughs> and and it's, it's kind of a big joke because I'm the crazy nut these days at coffee. Uh, but then we moved to France. To, we lived in Paris for a year in mm-hmm. uh, 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. And I was writing one of my books there. So what do you do? You know, expat in France and you got to go to the coffee shop to write your books. Those days, by the way, you could still smoke in the coffee mm, shop. Yeah. So you can imagine that my clothes would uh, be, you know, reeking of that, of that smell. But I still kind of stuck it out because I wanted to be. And I would say all that because there was this one coffee shop near our apartment that would go all every day. And they had a couple of waiters, but there was... It was always a um, table service, even though it was a small place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one waiter would come up to me and he would say, uh, come l'habitude, the usual. And uh, I, that took uh, two or three months to get there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I figured I got it made okay, that. Okay, I'm in now. I got it I'm, made I'm at that point. Usual. Yeah. So it's You're funny. Regular. It's about, you know, service is such a big thing, right? I mean, uh, coffee quality or if this is, uh, this, you're also a restaurant, but, you know, even a full full bore restaurant the food is, is critical but service is service is critical as well it's yeah. really important and I was really selling myself as a community based coffee shop from the beginning which we are you know I really wanted to to have a social hub I wanted to have a central place where people could meet have a conversation new people could meet each other mm-hmm. we would meet new people mm-hmm. you know, I, I live in I live in Canaan so it's, it's a little remote you know it's hard to meet people around here despite the upper valley really being sort of one big uh, one big happy family it's pretty spread out so even the socializing that you're able to do, you know, it takes it's it's a commute to go anywhere. Canaan is how far about from 20, here? About twenty miles. Twenty miles. Yeah, twenty miles. Back roads, too, twenty miles. Back roads, yeah. Route four. It's not too bad, but mm-hmm. uh, but it's nice to have a, a hub, you know. So you know, there's always something going on yeah. here. There's right. always going to be people here. We have regulars who come in who just come to chat at the counter, like they order a drink and they stand at the bar and talk to the baristas on their lunch break for half an hour and they go back to their job, you know. So, they go back to their job. Yeah. That's just like. Flooding with questions that I want to ask you about all all, all of these. But first, go, let's go back to the service thing. So, our, uh, along with being a coffee nut, I'm, I'm I'm also a big foodie, which they go hand in hand. Very high correlation, I would guess. And I remember being at a um, uh, there was I guess New York Food Festival, and we go every year or two. And there was a panel discussion once, and somebody asked this big restaurateur who has many many restaurants. You know, what's the most important thing? Like, what different, what do you remember? And he said, service. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised. It was the first time I had heard that. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, you know, service, but I thought it was the food. Yeah. Uh, they go hand in hand, and, for sure. Yeah, it just makes such a And the presentation is a big thing, you know, so... Uh, you can get a you can get a latte at a lot of, at a lot of places, but you can't get a latte with really beautiful latte art on it everywhere. Right, right. You know, so presentation is a piece of it, as is service. When you think about food that way, I mean, the aesthetic of the food it means a lot to, to yeah. me. I, how it uh, looks, how it tastes, how it smells. The, you know, the look all makes of it. a difference, right? It does. And yeah. the coffee is one thing with the you know the flowers or the hearts or whatever it is, but it, when you have dinner at home, most people are busy. Especially you have two teenagers. A lot of stuff going on. You're not making a work of art every... No. At least I assume you're not. But whenever whenever I can, I want that plate to look... The presentation, it's it gorgeous. Makes yeah. it, make, it does. I enjoy it more. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we're trained here. Even, even though we serve sandwiches and soup and really delicious breakfast sandwiches, there is a front to the plate. 
So even even back here making a sandwich with chips and a pepperoncini, yep. you're going to bring it to the table and you're going to turn it in such a way that it's going to be presented to the customer. You know, so it's not again, it's not just thrown on a plate in the way that a latte is not just thrown in a mug and right. you know. So my my you. my question is a really a speculative one, which is what is it about human nature, about people, and it's not everyone I I know, but a lot of people they, why do we value the aesthetic? It doesn't bring any for for a customer. It doesn't right. make you richer. I mean, it makes you happier if you're Doesn't into it. Doesn't necessarily taste any better because it, it, of it. It's the same food, right? Yeah. Do, do you have any any thoughts about? It? I mean, mm. I, I, this is human nature. Well, for me, it's art. You know, I mean, for uh, me, it's like it's the art piece. I have to. Things have to be beautiful in order for me to enjoy them. Not always. That's maybe maybe a little bit part of a rule. But yeah. you know, for most things, if I'm going to enjoy it, I, I it has to be sort of beautiful in some way or another. It has to smell beautiful or look beautiful or taste taste lovely. And you it, know? And, and and just. But even it goes to board, you know, we just, we just had Christmas, and so we got board games for Christmas, but the board games I picked out, of course, are, are pretty to look at, <laughs> you know, so it's it's a factor. It's always been a factor for me, for, for, yeah, you for it me has been. specifically. And I guess I'm thinking, maybe, maybe it's not for everyone. Of course it's not for everyone, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of people like like that, mm-hmm. and I'm not, I don't have any artistic skills, really, at yeah. all. It's just an admiration but of something, something well I done. something I really, uh, that's right, an admiration of something well done. Mm-hmm. There is something kind of reassuring that people actually care end of sentence but care about quality care about what they're presenting care about the the little things in life that are not so little it's hard for some people to put a lid on their drink when they take it to go (laughs) you know because it has the latte I've noticed that from coffee shops I hate to actually my wife refuses to take it to go even if we have to go (laughs) because first of all it's a paper cup I know they're high quality paper Mm -hmm. cups they're not the old styrofoam poison yeah but it's not the same. I'm it's drinking a little cortado in a, in a in a glass, mm-hmm. and it's just. Or if I have a cappuccino in a beautiful cup, it's right. it it's is tactile. the aesthetic. Yeah. It's tactile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, there, th- those little nuances they seem to have come to you pretty naturally. It's yeah. kind of who you are. It's, it's become it's in the business model for sure. So you know, much of what we do here is very detail oriented. I mean, the coffee business, specialty coffee, is very detail oriented. Mm-hmm. Every single shot we pull is weighed and timed and measured every time. Mm-hmm. And then we're constantly adjusting the espresso throughout the day to uh, match the humidity in the room or the temperature. Some colder days require the espresso to change over the day, the grind. Uh, so uh, there's. It's, it's really about attention to details, very much of it. So we're always cleaning up behind ourselves. We, you know, we grind coffee, it flies into the air, and we've got brushes. <laughs> so it's just, it's an always constant motion, making everything look aesthetically nice, too. Right. There's this... something about being in a really pristine, clean environment as well. Yes. Yeah. But it's clean. I mean, you're talking about physically clean, but also, I don't know. If but the... aesthetically, aesthetically clean. Aesthetically clean. Yeah. yeah. Cared for. I mean, it's really just cared for. Right. You know? Right. This At all I, levels. What you just said about, you know, it depends on what humidity or time of day for how the, the espresso is going to taste. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a crazy thing. Age I, of roast, time of day. Age of roast, yeah. time, time of day. Temperature in the building. Temperature. <laughs> and so the, the, the baristas have to be tasting. And, yeah, they're and, tasting. They, and they'll make an adjustment to the grind. Yep, making micro adjustments to the time that it takes to, to go through the machine, but also to the grind before it gets. Uh, before it even uh, gets into the portafilter into the espresso machine. So, right. yeah, it's constantly changing. Right. Yeah, very interesting. I wonder how many other things are like that. Where that, I mean, it sounds like such a simple thing for you know a little espresso, a little cappuccino, whatever you're mm-hmm. having. But 
lot. Yeah, it's not just to push a button and you get a coffee out the other end of a machine. Right. There's a lot of steps and a lot of training that right. goes into making a, a really nice espresso so beverage. So Lucky's is part of the third wave of coffee, as it's called. Mm-hmm. The, the first, I, the way I understand it is the first wave of coffee is like, you know, you ever see Seinfeld? You know, they're sitting in the in the coffee shop uh, and they're and they ask for coffee, and it's the endless pour of the coffee, which is still probably more of that than anything else in America. Mm-hmm. Europeans are always shocked by that, but right. yeah. um, that's that's kind of the first the first wave. Just coffee. You're getting your caffeine fix. You're getting a hot drink that that tastes somewhat like coffee should taste. Uh, and then the second wave was Starbucks that revolutionized coffee mm-hmm. and you know created this multi-billion-dollar company that's still that's still growing where they they, they source better um, uh, espresso becomes more important but not only and then the third wave are I think people that are po- they're post Starbucks they're people that really care about the quality of coffee they yeah. they often the go slowing down the, the slow the, that's right uh, they often go to um, or sometimes go to the actual farms where the coffee is uh, is sourced they have relationships with roasters which I think you also mm-hmm. uh, you also have and um, um, Some yeah. of the stories come in. So sometimes it's called storied coffee. What does that so, mean? So uh, the stories behind the beans, you know, where it, where it was grown mm-hmm. and what elevation it was grown, what farm specifically, and the people who own the farm, you know, and the practices at the farm, how it was uh, processed, but also how those people are treated and what kind of living they make, you know. So the stories of the actual agricultural product behind what you're drinking in your cup become important in, in right. third wave. You know? In the so, third wave, right, yeah. right. And uh, I'll tell you, my I, I create a rating scheme. Mm-hmm. I don't do it quite as often anymore because it's another obnoxious Sid thing. But um, um, <laughs> it's 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 kind of a um, it's a rating scheme where if you have the first wave of coffee, mm-hmm. so you go to your you go to your little coffee shop and it's a, it's fantastic, mm-hmm. but it's the first wave, so it's always from the pot that gets endless. Mm-hmm. The best score is one point zero. Okay, you can't do better. Then the second wave is Starbucks. Therefore, it's weighted at 2.0. So if you get the perfect Starbucks coffee, it's 2.0. It can't, it can't get any better because mm-hmm. that's their, that's optimal. And then the third wave is, guess what? 3.0 is the maximum. And, uh, and so it's between... The third wave is you can't get... It'd be pretty bad if you got a score less than two if you're the third wave. Yeah. But uh, I used to... I taught my daughter at this, and she always got a kick out of, out of that. You know, is it a 2.3? Is it a 2.7? Is it a 2.5? And I used to... I've been trying to tell people about it. Everyone thinks it's a little over the top, a little too much. Well, but it's just, a, it's just another way of thinking, of slowing down and thinking about what you're actually consuming. I mean, really, yeah. ultimately, that's what it is. It doesn't matter sort of what numbers you apply to it, but you, right. you are actually paying attention to what you're drinking. I am. Which is impressive. You I know? am. A lot of people don't. They don't slow down enough to really taste the flavor profile yeah. or really... Uh, admire the nuances in the cup, and that's that's pretty great. And a lot of these, uh, in, in a bunch of the episodes, podcast episodes, uh, I, I don't know whether it comes up naturally or my, my mind turns to it, but I'm thinking about mindfulness, because that's what you're mm-hmm. talking about, right? Mindfulness, about living in the present. Yeah. Uh, experiencing the moment in real time yeah. for whatever it means, and it's, of course, it's a big movement now, mindfulness, yeah. but it's a, it's a simple idea. It is. That, 
it's probably hard to do, right? It is, of course. Well, when you get busy, right, that's the whole thing. But, mm-hmm. but taking that time to slow down and taste and, and, and feel, you know, and mm-hmm. pay attention. Yeah, mindfulness is a big part of my life as well, which is actually, it goes back to what my tattoos are. I have oh. here and now written on one is that of my what it tattoos says? Here on, and my, now. Uh, on my forearm. As, a, remind me, as I, a reminder. Yeah, so I'm a meditator as well. And so that's what helped get me through the process of, uh, of construction of Lucky's. You know, sort of I really had <laughs> it kept to, you grounded, uh, it really didn't it? Did. Yes, yeah. that's yeah, a coffee through. joke. Kept you grounded. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Good one. Yeah, uh, yeah thank you. Um, so you you uh, you practice meditation. Mm-hmm. So how, how does that work? So for me, it, it happens uh, in the between spaces. So I, I don't have a formal practice. I don't necessarily go anywhere to do my practice, yeah. but I can I can do it. Uh, you know, in my car or. Uh, you know, even sitting alone for a couple of minutes. It's, for me, it's just a matter of dropping in, sort of. I feel like my heart rate lowers. Mm-hmm. I can just refocus and do it with my eyes open or closed. It just is a matter of letting go. So it's a way of grounding. I mean, you know, to make the joke again. But, yes. But it is. It's just you, a way of grounding uh, yourself so, and realizing uh-huh. the, big pic- the bigger picture uh, of what's going on around me. So it, it gets me through a lot of stressful situations, which, you know, owning your own, own business is pretty stressful. So it's pretty stressful. It's been, it's been my... Uh, it's been my saving grace, that's for sure. Wow. Yeah. How many years have you been doing this? Uh, I would say, you know, again, I have an informal practice, but sure. I would say I've been interested in it for probably five or six years. Yeah. And do you, do you say a word over and over, over again? Oh, like no, mantra? no. For me, None it's just silence. It's just silence and sort of uh, trying to focus on my breath and uh, bringing my mind to stillness if it's at all possible, which is, uh, which is difficult, you know? Bringing right. your mind to stillness yeah. is very difficult. Yeah, right. So, it's just the practice of realizing that you uh, have fallen out of stillness and uh, just trying to get back to it. So it, it, it's never perfect, you right. know, like much of life. But it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect because right. it helps. Because it helps. Yeah, so you're bringing up something that more and more I've been thinking about, which is there's a lot of ways to describe it, mind over body, you know. Um, uh, and there's more and more research about the placebo effect which is to say that you get something as you're the control the control group in a medical study but yet even though you've gotten a sugar pill or a nothing pill it has a positive impact on your body mm-hmm. which is really you know it was, right. even if you're doing it wrong you might still get some benefit yeah yeah and that's, so the placebo effect is a bad thing for for medical research except i think people are beginning to recognize that actually it's not the bad thing it's the, it could be the real thing mm-hmm. this that somehow our minds can can actually help us get better. I mean, I just... We're more powerful than we think. More powerful. I feel yeah. like this is a... This happens in a lot of uh, in a lot of places. Well, uh, I'm going to hold that thought for a second because I want to elaborate a little bit on, on, on some of my thoughts and get your view of that as well. <laughs> but let's, uh, let's take another short break okay. and come right back with uh, Deb Schindlinger. Okay, we're back. Uh, we're back at Lucky's Coffee Shop with uh, with Deb Schindlinger, and joining her for a few minutes is the head barista at uh, at Lucky's, Mark Nunziata. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. Good to good to have you. So you you kind of like have the dream job, uh, making coffee, making people happy uh, all the time. But you're like serious barista, aren't you? You've been into it for a long time. Yeah, I've been uh, working in the coffee industry for probably I would say going on about. 12 years and the last 10 or so as a barista. What makes somebody want to be a barista? Um, well, I kind of got into being a barista um, kind of in a, a, the reverse order that a lot of people enter the coffee industry. A lot of folks uh, who want to work with coffee will um, 
you know, if they're interested in roasting or working with green coffee or sourcing or going to countries where it's grown or things like that, they'll, uh, they'll start out by getting a job at a local coffee shop and that's their way into the industry. But for me, it was the other way around. Um, one of my first jobs in coffee was um, working in production and then roasting and then managing a small roasting company and where I worked, did quality assurance, worked with green coffee, uh, importers, and um, got to travel a lot, and it was really a lot of fun. Um, and that was my first kind of introduction yep. to the coffee industry. And then after that, I moved from Vermont, where I was working, to Portland, Oregon, where there is a thriving coffee community. No and kidding, yes. Ton, tons <laughs> of shops and tons of roasting companies. And I knew that if I wanted to get into roasting out there, I'd probably have to pay some dues behind a bar for a little while um, and kind of get my foot in the door and get to know people. Uh, so I got a job as a, at a coffee shop, and uh, that the rest is history. I've just been stuck behind the bar. Right. Since <laughs> stuck behind the bar. <laughs> there, are worse, realized, yeah. there are worse places. So first oh, of all, sure. in Vermont, who's roasting coffee in Vermont? Uh, well, there's a ton of companies now. Um, now, but back then? Uh, uh, back then, there was... Pretty small handful. Um, I mean, I can think of a couple of companies off the top of my head that were active around then. The company I worked for uh, in Brattleboro was called Mocha Joe's. Um, But now uh, the coffee industry in Vermont has elevated considerably in the last few years. Like a lot of foodie things in Vermont, right? Yeah, the roasting companies that we use at Lucky's are both Vermont companies. Uh, one in Woodstock is Abracadabra Coffee Roasters. Yep, I know and them. And um, in Northfield, Vermont, is Carrier Coffee Roasters. And they have elevated the game considerably really? since, since I was roasting in Vermont back in the day. In- interesting, interesting. So, uh, and then when you went to Portland, who'd you work for? It was a coffee shop, a local shop, or a big chain? Um, or? Well, I, got, I had a job uh, at a, a, a small local neighborhood shop okay. um, that... I assure you, you have not heard of. Um, it wasn't Stumptown. Well, eventually I did end up getting a job at Stumptown. Um, but I, um, I worked at a place for a while called Clive Coffee, and we sold... You know um, I have heard of Clive Coffee. Yeah, well, if you're yeah. a home espresso enthusiast, that's, that's the place to go. Um, we sold and serviced uh, home brewing equipment, and mostly high-end uh, espresso machines, and we developed... Um, a lot of web content around the, on the website and also some education classes. So mm-hmm. we did cupping and mm-hmm. uh, like home barista education classes, and I helped to develop and, and teach those. So, Mark, what's your theory about why coffee is so popular now? Well, um, it's delicious. <laughs> that hasn't changed. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's also getting more and more delicious as time goes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's safe to say. Um, the, a lot of roasting companies and coffee shops and individual uh, professionals and home enthusiasts are uh, focusing on quality in a way that has never really been done before, and it's only it's only elevating and escalating as time goes on. Mostly, uh, roasting companies are working a lot more directly with farmers to help improve mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the quality of coffee, starting with. Um, starting with what's going on at the farms with the soil and, and um, uh, cultivation practices and processing methods are um, being experimented with in ways that have never been done before. And um, even like varietals, so varietals of coffee that were typically grown in one place are being experimented with in other places and um, undergoing different processing methods after harvest. And 
um, kind of net zeroing in on um, like basically how to get more interesting, more refined, more clean and transparent flavors. Yeah, right, um, right, right, right. It's happening all the time. It, it's so, it's really interesting. I'm curious if you think there was some event or person or activity that was this point of inflection. And I'm going to throw one name out there that uh, is pretty well known in coffee business is George uh, Howell. Yeah. Uh, kind of a legendary I name. knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, and I think what he had is something like 20 coffee shops in the Boston area and Starbucks bottom all when he uh, when they were moving east and I think the story goes that he invented the Frappuccino that, that's, that's what the legend says that's yeah. the legend says and, and yeah. so I think Starbucks wanted that Frappuccino because they saw a billion dollar brand when they knew one when they saw one uh, which I, I think it's probably that and, and then some uh, so, do you think that his his role was uh, was really big, or is just one of these many, uh, one of many or several legendary people in business? Well, I think that he's, I would say, universally recognized as the godfather of specialty coffee in the United he States. Um, he definitely helped to spearhead a lot of um, developments at at Origin, and uh, in terms of like relationships between roasters and and farmers and uh, influencing farmers to kind of step up the game in terms of like quality of cultivation and processing. Um, so yeah, and his work with uh, his company in Boston, the Coffee Connection definitely gave, yep. gained him a lot of fame in the industry and as it continues with um, Terroir and, and the GHH Coffee Company, um, he maintains access to some of the most exciting and most interesting coffees because of the stature that he has in the industry, and he manages to um, kind of continue putting out some of the some of the tastiest coffees that that you can get. Yeah, and so you yeah. say he was like a recognizes the Godfather. So in in this, especially coffee. So is it the case that people that work for him, um, or were yeah people that work for him? ended up becoming pretty big names or successful people in coffee or is it more of a general influence uh, or maybe a little bit of both well um, definitely looks good on a resume to say that you work directly with, <laughs> with George Howell um, the person that uh, owned the company that I first worked in coffee at uh, was kind of a protege of George Howell and uh, they maintained a relationship and we would uh, purchase coffees together. We would get phone calls from George. He'd be like, "Hey, I got this really fantastic Kenya. Do you want to buy half of it with me?" And we'd get to go down and and uh, cup coffee at his laboratory in in uh, Acton, Massachusetts. And um, you know, having direct access to somebody with that much history and knowledge in the industry was definitely uh, really cool. As I was um, kind of learning the ropes as a newer coffee professional, 10, right. 10 12 right. years ago. I've heard some of those stories about George uh, George Howe. He's, he's um, very definitely very passionate. Unbelievably uh, passionate, yeah. yes. Um, I mean, that's what it takes, perhaps, to be a person that changes changes the business in many in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he created this um, um, competition um, among farms um, to see which one. There's some international auction that he. Help create? Am I it, getting that right? The, the cup of excellence competition. Yes, that was probably, it. That yeah, was it. Yeah, my understanding is that after um, Starbucks bought his, the, you know, the company that he had built in, in Boston, he um, 
I guess had some had some free time to play with after yes. that, and uh, and worked to develop a cup of excellence competition, which um, has definitely helped to highlight um, a lot of the effort that a lot of the better farmers are doing in different countries around the world, right? And reward, highlighting and rewarding um, effort that farmers are putting into refining um, the cup profile of their coffees. So, Mark, why uh, why do you like uh, being in the coffee business? Why do you like being a, a barista in particular? Um, well, he's thinking. <laughs> I mean, what, what initially drew me to the coffee industry was um, the fact that it is... Well, first of all, it's full of really interesting people um, yep. for, at every step of the industry. So people who are growing coffee or importing coffee or roasting coffee or serving coffee or even just people who are um, you know, working in sales or in production at coffee companies tend to be really, really passionate about, about what they do and about the coffee um, and about contributing to something that is pretty special in, you know, in the lives of basically everybody that is a part of it, everybody that consumes it um, so the people uh, in the industry is, is definitely something that helped to draw me in at first also um, initially it was the the link between um, something that we're all familiar with and something that we can enjoy on a daily basis and that is really delicious uh, the link between that and um, social justice issues and like economic justice issues it was uh, kind of an introduction to the fair trade coffee industry yeah, that drew yeah, me yeah. in uh, at first um, and basically I my intention was to originally when I was um, you know roasting working with green coffee and I had more of a connection um, directly to the, the world of um, coffee and global trade um, I you know my dream job at one point was to do something like coffee like producer community relations and development projects in, mm-hmm. uh, in, in areas where coffee is being grown um, and the opportunities that I got to visit uh, Mexico and Guatemala where coffee is being grown it was really amazing to see the impact of uh, coffee production the coffee industry on those communities uh, for better or for worse um, depending on how the industry is approached in growing communities um, it can be something that um, is really detrimental to the health of those communities and traps people in cycles of poverty, or it can, um, you know, contribute amazing things and um, help to build schools and uh, provide water to rural communities. Yeah, um, and you know, help elevate people out of poverty just the same. So yeah, it's interesting because so many people, when I ask you know what got you interested in your job or your career. Uh, it's almost always something that gives them personal meaning in their lives. It's, you know, everyone needs a job, everyone needs to work, everyone needs to make some money. Uh, but the things that really give you some personal meaning that connect to your values, those are the ones that really stick. So we're talking to Mark Nunziata, um, who is the head barista here at Lucky's. And before we wrap up, just a, a little question about your boss who's sitting next to you here. Uh, so is she a good boss? Yes, she's fantastic. Thank you for asking. Um, to be to be perfectly honest with you, and um, I don't want to like make her cry or anything while we're sitting here. Um, but it, yeah, it comes up in um, in in conversation with people who kind of ask how things are going at Lucky's. Or uh, I was actually 
um, at a nearby pub uh, talking with a coworker. Yep. Um, after work one day a little while ago when we were talking about you know what it's like to work at Lucky's and we both just really agreed like yeah Deb is like, the best boss I've ever had you know um, the coffee industry people who tend to get into coffee uh, with an eye toward ownership um, can be really interesting people interesting uh, very, huh <laughs> um, eccentric uh, controlling mm-hmm. uh, people mm-hmm. who really like mm-hmm. power and telling people what to do and I've worked for a number of people who have been varying degrees of um, really inspiring or really difficult and uh, and Deb is, has um, just been really probably one of the most like even even keeled and level headed people that I've ever worked for and when uh, <laughs> I mean I I was around before the cafe opened, um, yeah. kind of helping to get things going, and um, so I don't know if you've ever tried to open a food service business, but can't say I've done that. Typically fraught with uh, obstacles and challenges and delays, uh, and working with vendors and contractors. Um, basically, it's one thing after another that keeps it from moving in the right direction in spite of all your best efforts and because um, what kind of watching that happen before the place even opened and um, I remember I mean I don't remember exactly what was happening but it was like issues with the refrigeration issues with HVAC issues with the electrical the and the plumbing and the, the, flo- flooring. the flooring and <laughs> yeah. and every, like one thing after another and, and it kept getting pushed back and back and I was just like man if this is what Deb is like in the midst of all this, like, totally stress-inducing chaos, and she's just keeping her eye on the ball and keeping things moving forward and not freaking out or, or getting on anybody's case about it, just, just making sure that everything is running as smoothly as possible in spite of all the challenges. I was like, if this is what she's like in a situation like this, then this cafe is going to be all right. Oh. <laughs> like, yeah. Thank you, Mark. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, and it's kind of been that way ever since, you know. I mean, of course, we we have our moments. We like to argue about the music. Yeah. About music? Like, yeah. Well, that's like any coffee shop you ever go to. What do you like? There's always... Mark, what, what, what do you like? What are we uh, listening to right now, uh, Deb? Uh, we're listening... I, did, yeah, actually, I can check, actually. So it's a... Uh, it's a playlist that was created by a friend, actually, uh, for the coffee shop. It's about three hours long. I'd say it's probably, what would you say, Mark? Uh, indie acoustic, maybe? Uh, coffee maybe shop music. Coffee he's shop shaking music. his head. Yeah. I don't think he's... We, we disagree on musical genres quite a bit. Uh, he's also a musician, by the way. But, um, you know, what he chooses to listen to on a daily basis in here, uh, what lights him up might be different from what lights me up. So there's... Uh, I'm, I'm not allowed to listen to music in here that I would actually want to listen to. <laughs> so everybody wants to know what is that music oh yeah okay so uh, tell us I like, I like heavy metal heavy metal oh yeah that's very relaxing when I'm having a cortado I have yeah, to say yeah. <laughs> he thinks it is so. well Mark yeah. thanks for uh, thanks for stopping by and uh, sharing yeah, Mark, some of your you. thoughts uh, good to have you with us it's great to have him here yeah. but it couldn't happen without him to be honest with you oh thanks for having me Sid and and Deb too <laughs> break so uh so Deb's here now uh, in front of the microphone uh, by herself. Mark has uh, gone back to pulling shots. So Deb, what? tell me the truth. I mean, what's he really like? Is yeah. it a now you can tell the truth. Yeah, Nobody's yeah. listening. I mean, no, Nobody. It's, it's all safe. Yeah. No, he's, he's, he's excellent. I mean, clearly his, his, uh, he's forgotten more about coffee than I will ever know, <laughs> you know. 
Uh, it's been wonderful having him here. So yeah, he has yeah. really elevated our game. I knew where we wanted to head, uh, and my stress level as soon as he walked in the door when I was under construction. Uh, he, he actually interviewed me, to be honest with you. He interviewed I, he, you? He interviewed me uh, to, see I if, love that. to see if he, uh, I think, he wanted to work here. I think that people should be interviewing yeah. their bosses as yeah. much as possible. So uh, he, uh, as much as you can get away with, actually. Absolutely. It's a, it's a two-way street, you know. Uh, so we were under construction. I remember I was in here in my overalls, and I think we had to rip this floor up about three times. Oh, my God. I was on my third rip-up, mm. and I was absolutely covered in dust and grime and, you know, heavy lifting all day long, and it was, like, July. You know, it was 90 oh. degrees. It was pretty miserable. The doors were up, and I was moving flooring. And he came in, and he's like, so... Uh, here you're open a coffee shop here (laughs) and so I said yeah yeah we are you know he's like oh I just moved here from Portland and I have some experience and you know love to talk to you about it and I said okay great I put the flooring down you know and sort of struck up a conversation and he he interviewed me uh, with very specific questions what kind of machine are you running so when I told him I had a long Soko, he was like oh okay and then he (laughs) said well how many ounces is your cappuccino and I said, it's going to be six ounces. And he's like, okay, all right. And, you know, so what's your roast profile? What's your preference for roast profile on the machine? And, you know, what kind of grinder are you getting? And all of these wow. very specific questions. And somehow my answers were okay. He was checking so, yeah, that, you, was, that yeah, you had the right yeah. stuff on this. That's great. Yeah, so so very quickly he became a really integral part of our coffee program here. And he actually designed it, you know. So it's a little bit of a dream for him as well to sort of say, like, we should get this grinder and we should get these cups and these kind of scales and these kind of portafilters and this and this, you know, and all these kind of the pictures that he wants. So he got yeah. to pick and choose all the really right. great stuff to work with, right. and it's been wonderful. So. It's, it's another example specific to, you know, coffee business and Lucky's and your personal situation here. But getting the right right-hand woman or right-hand man is uh, unbelievably oh, so yeah. important and it's hard it's hard to get great people it's hard to and it's hard to keep great talent as that's well right. that's right yeah so um the last little segment is uh let's call it the uh short but difficult short answers for difficult to difficult questions okay. Uh, Sounds fun. Uh, it's well, you, you don't look like it's going to sound fun. Actually, there are the types of things people always want to know, and I'm very, very curious about okay. them. And they're all over the map. All right. Um, so uh, we'll start with. Uh, well, think about this morning. When when you woke up this morning, what what's the first thing you were thinking about? When I woke up this morning, uh, what the temperature was inside Lucky's when I was at home because we've been closed for two days. So I, I worry a lot about the the physical the physical maintenance of this building because we're in an old garage we haven't been here for two days so I was thinking huh I wonder right. hopefully the, the heat was turned right for the last two days and we're okay in there So can you check the temperature on your I phone? cannot check the temperature from home oh, it looks but like my, you my need baker, the... my baker arrives very early at 3am uh, so at I, can always, I can always check and he wasn't wearing a parka so you were okay <laughs> right. okay good 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 it was okay um, so the, Lucky's been very successful but uh, not just Lucky's but your career or your life this is a harder question but um, do you have any uh, any regrets? Everyone has regrets, I suppose, but do you have any regrets? I really, you know, it's interesting that you ask that yeah. because I really have very few. Mm. I really don't go through life regretting much. So yeah. whatever decision I make, I really just move into it. Uh, you know, many, I've had a lot of different careers and uh, I've been very blessed that way to just sort of move from one thing to the next that interests me. But uh, I know when, t- when time is up. I mean, that's essentially it, to listen to that inner inner nudge, that right. the gut feelings that yeah. you have about yeah. something. And it's just about admitting when um, when you know that your work there is done, you know? So, yeah. And it can come to relationships. It can come to friendships. It can come to living in certain areas, you know? So 
um, I tend to make pretty easy decisions. Uh, and again, I like change. So for me, it's there. There isn't really fear there for that. Yeah, yeah. But I try. I try you not try. to have too many regrets. You know. Because you go. You're going for it. You're yeah, doing you're going the best for you can. It. You know, it's not like I'm closing a door forever on something. But uh, in order to move forward, you have to let the past go, and maybe that's where mindfulness comes right. in a bit too. Right. Right. So. In in order to move forward, you have to let the past go. That's. Yeah. That's very good life advice and also <laughs> advice for baseball hitters and golfers. Okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm not very sportsy. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, um, you said you got, you got married, I guess it was in Oregon and Eugene before. So how did you meet your husband? I met him out in Oregon. Um, he, let's see here, how do I tell that story? So I was... Um, was living in Eugene. He lived around the corner from me um, and met me at a uh, mutual part, a mutual friend's barbecue, essentially. Yeah. And, you know, it was one of those sort of moments where you see somebody in the room and you're like, oh, he looks interesting. And, you know, he kind of went, she looks pretty interesting, but we're both with other people and, you know, it's not really a thing. Uh, And then we sort of ran into each other maybe a year later and across the Interestingly, it was an old renovated garage. There's a lot of these weird things that keep popping up in my life. We were in a bar that used to be a garage called Sam Bond's Garage. And, um, you know, I was across the bar and he was over there. And I said, hey, there's that guy. And, she, and he went, oh, there's that girl. And, so you, you recognize know, each yeah, other a year later. Recognize each other a year later. And he came over and said, hey, I'm Dave. You're Deb, aren't you? And I remember, you know, he basically remembered everything about me, which was the sweetest thing ever. And I kind of remembered who he was, you know, rec- enough to recognize him. Then you're racking your brains. i got to give like, this I, guy I something because he remembers he me. Yeah, he remembers everything about me. And so it turns out we lived uh, a couple of blocks from each other. And he started swinging by. And, you know, the rest is history how it goes you know so yeah he would do these really cute things like he'd swing by and he'd say hey i'm uh walking to the grocery store um you want anything (laughs) who does that you know it's the cutest thing yeah it's uh that's great just an excuse to knock on my door Uh, yeah yeah Yeah. great um so imagine you can go back and um to when you were say early 20s and you can give your own self one piece of advice Mm. What would you, what would you tell your twenty-one-year-old or twenty-five-year-old self? I think I feel like it's more like helping my twenty-one or twenty-five-year-old daughters, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know, that might mm-hmm. be like another lens to look at that question yep. through. Because uh, to be honest with you, there isn't much I haven't done. So for myself, it's sort of like I've. I have quite a bucket list that I've already accomplished, and so I feel really great about that. But for my kids, I feel, or for people in general, young twenties, just just do the thing. You know, like, don't delay doing the thing that interests you, even if it's not necessarily uh, what society expects of you. Like, I took a year off of college. I traveled, you know, so I recommend traveling. I mean, really, ultimately, that gives you the global perspective in life. It just sort of gives you an outside view of yourself and uh, your worldview. Traveling is great. And, um, you know, follow your your instinct. Do what interests you, not what's expected of you. Yeah. Yeah, that's Ultimately. that's a that, that's great advice, but difficult for a lot of people, even as they get even as they get older. Yeah. we let we let our we let the expectations of others sometimes govern what yeah. we do and how we think. Yeah. and I think that's that kind of closes it, it does close down some some doors. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have any stories to share from when you were a kid? Some of your earlier memories, or earliest when you were six, eight, ten, twelve, whatever. Uh, just to kind of get a sense of 
it's kind of like one snapshot because there's so many things, obviously, yeah, and we so don't remember. We forget so many things, but mm-hmm. one snapshot that you'd want to share about your childhood. Well, uh, one very visceral, visceral snapshot, I would say. I was probably about six. I was living in uh, New Mexico, living on. We lived on a Navajo uh, Indian reservation, actually, mm-hmm. in a little town called Navajo. Moved around a lot with my father. Um, but we were, we were living there, and it was high desert, uh, very much like the mural that's painted inside Lucky's. That's why that one was painted, actually. We live very close I to see there. That. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and so, um, you know, it was, it was high, high desert, lots of red, uh, red clay for rock formations, and we had um, wild horses that lived in our town. You know, they would scratch their backs on the siding of our house. Like, they were wild you know, horses. Wild horses, you know, wow. wandering around. And they'd, uh. you'd, you'd actually wake up in the middle of the night and you'd hear this kind of weird sort of scratching noise. And it's a horse scratching his back on your house, you know. And then also I remember uh, picking pine nuts off of the, the, the pinyon pines up in the high deserts there. Yeah. So. It's yeah, funny it's what, just, what sticks in our heads. You yeah, know, very these, visceral. Uh, and you don't, you don't forget it. It's something. It just kind of locks in. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. Um, the blue sky and the red rocks, mm-hmm. and just the scent of the desert, the sagebrush. I mean, well, there's Merle that's can here. Get transported. Um, that I guess you had it drawn. Yeah, did you so, do it yourself? No, I did not. My best friend, uh, my best friend, actually painted the mural. Jocelyn Dana. She lives in uh, Cohasset, Massachusetts, just outside Boston. Yep. But it's it is a painting of ship rock which is a, uh, a Navajo sacred site, and it's about an hour and a half north of where I used to live out there. Yeah. And so when I was designing Lucky's, I wanted to pull in the orange and the blue, and I was sort of tired of looking at, at New Hampshire landscapes. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, hey, I've got a spot I know that's quite beautiful, so there you go, it's, the orange uh, and the blue it, got pulled in. It's really a reflection of, of you, this, uh, this place, not just in terms of the business or your background, but who you are when you when you see that and you mm. you share that with us. Well, thanks. Yeah. Um, so, Deborah, are you happy? I am happy, actually. I'm very happy. I'm I'm satisfied. You know, Lucky's has been been going for a year now, and it's going very well, uh, better than I had ever expected. And my crew is amazing. I have almost a uh, I have nine full time employees now, and I'm able to take some time off. You know, I'm able to sort of not be here. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which yep. is amazing. So mm-hmm. for your first year of business, um, yeah, I'm very satisfied. And when I when I come here, I'm pretty happy too because this fair. is pretty darn good coffee. <laughs> Deb, well, you Deb, certainly drained your cortado. I yeah. did. <laughs> Deb Schindlinger, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. Hey guys, it's Ben again. Sometimes producing the Sidcast is a pretty good gig. I got a cup of coffee and a free hat in the house today. Not bad. I might have briefly mentioned this before too, but I know how much you love the Sidcast. So please continue to share on all social media. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and if you're feeling especially generous, consider rating us on your favorite podcast listening app. Those five-star ratings go a long way. We'll see you next week when Sid talks to philanthropist, Obama fundraiser, and education reformer, Jane Watson Stetson. Thanks for listening.